So in your own words, can you tell me what injury prevention is? I think that injury prevention is learning about the different types of accidents that can happen in like day-to-day -day life or at the workplace and then um, taking measures to prevent them from happening before they actually occur. Um. Injury prevention uh, is around your workplace when there is either no, where there's a spill on the floor without knowing it, okay. or tripping, going down the stairs at work and then twisting your ankle. Um, well, like health and safety measures to prevent workplace injuries. Okay. And can you provide examples in everyday life? Um, gosh, making sure like floor tiles are down, uh, like rounded edges on doors and chairs and tables and things. Um, proper signage for spills, slip for to prevent slips and falls. Mm, what else? Well, what I do um, is, first of all, again, keeping the mindfulness, being conscious of my own limitations and my physical space as well. Um, but also, if I have introduced anything foreign or caused a spill or change um, the space also, to also be mind mindful and conscious of this change. So, for instance, as a child growing up, I've often been told, if you spill water, ensure that you clean it up because you could come and fall in it or somebody else who don't know that there's water there could could also slip in it so again to just be always aware of yourself or myself and also to ensure that i clean up after i guess those are some of the things that pops up to me when i just think of it off the bat Welcome to Injury is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shari Thompson Ritchie from the Center for Injury Prevention. On today's episode, we are giving you a snapshot of what injury prevention is. Although traumatic events happen to all people at all ages and across all socioeconomic strata in our society, these events are not a form of divine intervention or simply occur just because. There are complex, multiple, and intersecting factors, whether individual, community, structural, and societal, that are commonly at play, that set the stage for these traumatic events that are experienced and can result into traumatic injury or death as outcome. It is important to highlight that traumatic injury is the leading cause of death for Canadians under the age of 45 years, and the leading cause of hospitalization and death for all ages. Injury is not experienced equally across the population. Like other health issues, injury risk is affected by the social determinants of health. 
The social determinants of health are linked to injury through a variety of pathways, including risks that, and hazards in community and home environments, stress caused by poverty and social exclusion, workplace pressure, hazards and access to safety equipment, services and education. The Canadian Institute for Health Information reports that the poorest Canadians experience injury at a rate 1.3 times as higher than the wealthiest. The connection between socioeconomic status and injury is enabled by age, race, sex, and gender, urban and rural environment, education, and conditions in workplace housing and income. With all that being said here, we are on this podcast wanting to speak to all of this and more. No doubt this isn't a little mountain to climb and the conversation may not be the easiest to approach. So I am super excited to introduce my guest today, Brandy Tannenbaum. Brandy is a colleague of mine. We have a history of engaging critical conversations over coffee and Pringles or chocolate, whatever we can find on our office snack cart. We typically work four feet from each other, but uh, times aren't very typical. So these days we've been connecting virtually for the past six months. Brandy is a certified risk manager and works as an injury prevention program coordinator at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, Ontario. She is passionate about community health and safety. Her interest started as a child growing up in a neighborhood where kids rode bikes until the streetlights came on and developed further when completing a master's degree in public health. Working in recreation, sport, and healthcare for more than 25 years introduced her to new people, big ideas, and global concepts that cultivated her approach to healthy communities. She's presently on a mission to explore the concept of risk as it relates to injury across the lifespan. So before we dive into questions, how about we address some of the public answers to what they think injury prevention is? Sure. Um, thanks for the introduction. That was lovely. I sound very old. No! Um, I would like to say <laughs> I started this journey when I was three years old. So the tr- no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I did not. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So listening to those snippets, what struck me most is that um, workplace safety has done a pretty good job marketing itself mm. and. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, where those people were interviewed, but um, it seems that they were relating a lot of safety to um, to their workplace environment. And and so that's, you know, that's really good because um, I think injury prevention um, has probably seen its, its greatest success in that particular space. Um, it's supported really well too, um, at least in Ontario by um, government and the Ministry of Labor and, um, you know, safety boards, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of structure and legislation around workplace safety. So it's not too surprising that people will associate a question about injury prevention um, with with workplace. Um, I think the, the, the bigger issue is why they're not associating it with anywhere else outside of work, because we, we, spend, uh, we spend a lot of time outside of work um, without the... Um, uh, the structure and the legislation, um, for the most part, uh, there are places where we will be, where, where we will see that structure, like, uh, like road safety, for instance. Um, but, you know, our, our day-to-day lives are not structured in such a way that we're, you know, we're constantly under um, some, some kind of safety legislation or protocol. 
Um, I think one of the other uh, uh, speaker spoke about even slips and falls in home. So if water was on the ground, they had to be mindful of that and make sure that they clean it up or even like signage around slips and falls. So there's, sure. there's, there's a lot <laughs> when it comes to falls uh, and um, it seems to be on the public's minds in comparison to too. like driving <laughs> while impaired. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> falls are a huge, huge, enormous, catastrophic uh, mm. uh, um, issue in, okay. in Canada, and so that it's front and center, um, at least in one person's mind, is important. I think it was interesting that he noted that it was um, sort of his personal mission and mandate, and he was raised that if he spilled water, that he should clean it up because it could put himself or somebody else at risk, um, which is great. Uh, and I think. That, that sort of raises the question about whose responsibility um, safety is. And mm. um, it's, it's not just an individual uh, responsibility, um, although it, it is an individual responsibility, but in addition to that is also the responsibility of uh, um, other, other levels of jurisdiction around us um, and, and, and creating these, um, these processes and uh, um, uh, and, and education and um, structure and legislation and things that do provide um, a pathway for mm -hmm. individuals to to be safe on their um, you know throughout their their lives. I think oftentimes we think of safety and injury prevention, and I, I think a, a big issue that that we've explored before is the language, and um, and sometimes we'll talk about what's safe and what's not safe, and we'll talk about safety as sort of a substitute for injury prevention. And oftentimes people will think of safety as sort of an outcome, like I didn't get hurt, therefore the activity was safe, um, as opposed to recognizing injury prevention and safety as a process, um, a, a very scientific process that, uh, that should be applied um, and, and, uh, and a way of thinking both individually and at a systems level. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done in this, in this area and, and still the language we're using is, is not quite hitting the mark and and even in the four or five people that were interviewed uh, previously we heard one of them using the um the word accident which is something that we try to stress is is not a word that we use uh, in in the injury prevention field so talk let's quickly talk about that why don't we use the word i call it the a word the a word <laughs> the a word why don't we use that word why isn't that something of uh, relevance in the injury prevention world? It was suggested a few years back and, and it was written about um, uh, as, as more of an opinion piece, uh, but it was taken to heart by one of the safety journals looking at the language that we use when we describe um, incidents, uh, injuries, um, where they come from, and this notion of blame and fault and um, you know, when, when we say, oh, don't worry, that was just an accident, we're almost absolving somebody of any personal responsibility. And, and it, it's quite possible that they didn't have any personal responsibility in the injury incident. Um, but it, it's, it's uh, but the perspective on injury in this field is that these injuries, these incidents, occurrences, mishaps, um, whatever other words we're gonna use to describe them, uh, they're predictable and preventable we do have data that helps us to understand that you know we will have so many people each year who will um, be uh, seriously injured uh, disabled or 
be killed from injuries um, in, in various manners. And so um, it's not a surprise that these things happen. So understanding the mechanisms that, um, that, that occur before the incident um, and understanding those mechanisms, understanding the influences, the factors, and being able to intervene and stop them from happening um, can either reduce the likelihood of an injury in the first place or reduce the severity of the, uh, the injury outcome. So uh, we have a lot of work to do in this space. The language that we use is problematic and the perspective that our general public has around um, the scientific approach to, uh, to safety and injury prevention is, is problematic. Wow. Yeah, no, totally. And I think um, one thing that our listeners can draw out, if they could draw anything out of what you've just said, is that uh, injury, uh, it mostly is predictable, therefore it's preventable. So absolutely thinking about what took place and what was at play prior to the incident to then equal the outcome, whether that be a, a traumatic injury or unfortunately uh, death. I think we're gonna dive into that a little bit more with the next question when we talk about uh, his, the history of injury prevention. You know, what are ways that we practice injury prevention um, these days? So just so our listeners can kind of get a taste and a flavor of the specifics, uh, what is injury prevention? What are ways that we practice it? Sure. So, uh, injury prevention at its at its heart, at its root, is a, is a very simple process. It's uh, well, I say it's a simple process. It's a four step process, but there is some complexity within those four steps. So, the first step is is understanding where injury is happening, to whom it's happening, uh, how you know the frequency, um, the contributing factors. Uh, understanding those pieces of information. Um, allows us to, you know, put on our detective hat and really dig in around um, the conditions that um, that precede the the injury, so we can understand how to intervene. We can, like we can't just make decisions in rush and decide which interventions are going to be best. We really do have to test various interventions to understand what's the best way to uh, to solve the injury issue at hand. Um, once we've decided the best way to go about that, the third step is to actually implement the intervention and then, and then followed by evaluating to understand how well did we do. And it's, it's a, it's a, a self-priming um, cycle. So once we've Im implemented, uh, we continue to evaluate, we understand, and then we, we're monitoring to understand how the intervention affects the, the rate of injury. That's a process. It's, it's uh, uh, not often used, it seems, um, uh, you know, generally when we're trying to address some of our injury issues, oftentimes we leap to the intervention and we'll just go ahead and implement something without having tested it before. And sometimes we do that without even understanding the, the data and understanding the spread of, of the injury. So um, even within our field, we've got a lot of work to do, um, but, it's, uh, but that's injury prevention. It's a process that helps us understand who's being injured, how they're being injured, where they're being injured, a few other questions along that, that path. And then it's about you know, using our, our best knowledge, using best examples, uh, either from within our field or outside of our field to um, come up with solutions, test those solutions, pick one, and, uh, and then try to understand how that intervention affects the, the injury issue. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's a process, it's not an outcome. 
So how about we get an example? How about like a historical example? I know you have a favorite one, so I don't know if this would be the... Oh, I have so many. <laughs> give us one. Oh. We can't well, give them all. You know, like if you're if you're talking about the history, I think a, a really good example is um, the the very beginnings of of modern public health uh, began with an outbreak of cholera um, in in London, England. There were some theories about what was causing illness uh, throughout the city, and uh, and one one of um, the, the, the 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 father of of modern public health was able to. I think his name is John Snow. Is that the same character as uh, that TV? What was that? What's that show? Oh um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on everything. I'm drawing a blank as well, but I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm sure our listeners would know exactly. They're probably screaming it. it out I'm right the, now. I'm the <laughs> only person who did not watch it. John yeah, Snow. Game of, okay, Game of Game Thrones. Of Thrones. Uh, oh, so. I didn't watch it either. We're like the only ones on the planet. Right. <laughs> All right. So All right. yeah. So John Snow. He was an English physician, and um, and he was able to. Uh, uh, understand by tracking where people were uh, who were getting sick um, within the city. Um, he was able to trace the, um, the the contaminants back to a single pump uh, or, or water well, and he was able to uh, turn that water well off. Um, and all of a sudden, the outbreak of cholera ended uh, for people who were drinking from that well, of course. And uh, and that's basically the you know the advent of of um, of modern public health and injury prevention sits nicely uh, within uh, the public health field, and uh, and so we draw on the you know the, the theories, the practices of of public health at large that works to um, uh, re- you know reduce the uh, the effects of injury as well as chronic disease and infectious disease as we're seeing uh, so so well right now with uh, with COVID. Some of the thinking around the uh, the epidemiology and the the science of understanding where these issues come from. So that's not necessarily an injury um, um, example, but I think it's a a pretty good one. Um, it's a great story. And so if you if you do Google John Snow, you want the um, you want the physician born in eighteen thirteen, not the character from Game of Thrones. That's awesome. And thank you for that, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> that clarification is necessary. Right? It, it's important. <laughs> um, yeah, but generally speaking, injuries and, and violence, um, these are ancient health problems. Like, they have existed as long as humans have been on this planet. Um, and, uh, and and it's only in, in our very recent history, like in the last 70 80 years that we've actually applied some rigor, some scientific rigor to the study of, um, of prevention. In the, in the injury prevention world, we can't fix what we don't know, right? So Correct. let's bring this conversation to the forefront. So what is missing? What types of injuries are prominent, you know, from your knowledge and, and amongst which groups? Yeah, well, we only know what what our data tells us, and and we know that that's only part of the picture because we only know what we ask. Um, typically, um, there's a lot that we don't ask, so we're we're there's a lot of gaps in our data. Um, what we do know is that injury um, affects uh, Canadians across the the lifespan. So the very young to the very old, and everyone in between is is at risk for injury, but it's not fair to say that everybody's at equal risk for injury. So where you're born, um, what neighborhood you live in, um, who your parents are, uh, the job you have, um, the car you drive, 
these these things matter and and can um, you know make the difference uh, in terms of whether you're injured or not or how severe that injury is. So if you if you're only driving um, you know an older car, uh, which a lot of people do, um, and and maybe it's not maintained uh, as well as it, as it, as it needs to be because those bills are pretty expensive. Um, you know, we see the the catastrophic results of people who are injured in those cars versus somebody who's in the, the latest model with all of the bells and whistles, uh, or the person who was able to avoid the collision because they have new safety mechanisms in their car that applied the brakes with you know with without them uh, being aware. Uh, so the injury, the, the collision never even happened. But but we've seen firsthand the effects of um, what happens uh, to somebody injured in a, in a car where the safety mechanisms fail because of, of age or uh, or maintenance. And further to that, we know in 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 the context of today and and the the impetus for this podcast, we absolutely know that socioeconomics, uh, race, um, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, uh, indigenous status, we know that the factors. Uh, greatly affect injury risk um, in, in, in ways that, uh, you know, don't affect others. We don't know the specifics on that because we're not typically in Ontario or in Canada tracking that kind of information. And that's part of another conversation that's starting to, to happen now, which is really important. But to the point that we can't fix what we don't know, um, we, we know that we have, um, we, we know that we have a problem um, and we need to start asking the question. Otherwise, we become part of that problem. So, um, yeah, what's missing is is the data. Absolutely. Definitely something that's missing. You, you definitely raised something that's very current and on the, on the conversation block for a lot of organizations, um, community health centers, et cetera. Um, it's getting that data, understanding what's actually happening in our community so that we can actually support and provide the best care possible for our communities. I think it's a great segue to talk about injury prevention, not being new, but addressing inequity is. And I don't know how fair that statement is, but I'm gonna run with it. <laughs> and uh, reducing injuries is, uh, it's complex. It's a complex process. You gave us a little bit of the four-step process in order to uh, prevent injury. And we definitely need to take account the multi-level factors that influence behavior, environments, and you know, outcomes. So, you know, the ASEP document, the social determinants of injury, states that injury is complicated. It's multi-level, it's dynamic, and which requires us to have a comprehensive coordinated approach to make effective injury prevention strategies. So with this in mind, how are we doing, Brandy? <laughs> Sorry, we're not doing well at all. The, I, I love this document. It, it, was, it was developed by the Atlanta Collaborative uh, for Injury Prevention in 2011. And um, that's, uh, that's like almost 10 years ago. Um, and how are we doing? I don't think we've moved the dial much at all in this regard. Uh, it's it's a really um, sad statement. I think you know there are some qualifiers to that. Uh, there are enormous barriers uh, in, in the work that we do in injury prevention. There is um, there's almost minimal uh, funding, if if not less than that, 
that's put towards prevention in our healthcare system um, and, and even less for injury prevention. And so not making excuses, but just trying to, you know, create a context for um, the complexity of working in this space. Yeah, how are we doing? We're, we're doing a terrible job. Uh, I'm not sure what we, I'm not sure how we do this uh, um, in a coordinated fashion um, nationally um, or, or provincially, um, or even just um, at, at a local level. Uh, it, it requires that coordinated approach like ASIP was calling for. And I'm not sure that we have the infrastructure in place yet to allow us to do this work, um, to address the, the, uh, the inequity. Um, I think we're at the very early stages of raising this with a much, uh, a much more powerful megaphone. I think, you know, ASIP set the table for us a decade ago. Um, and, uh, and, and although it's taken far too long, um, there is, there's momentum, you know, to work towards, to reducing, to reducing inequity. Uh, for how long the momentum will be sustained, I don't know. And I think that's why, you know, that, that's what's driven us to, you know, create this space to have these conversations because, um, uh, you know, we're very much aware that something can happen tomorrow and turn the conversation, you know, the, the, that public conversation on a dime. And now people will focus on something else. So um, I, I think this conversation itself and the podcast series and trying to raise the questions is, is an important part of, of starting to do this work. So I'll be optimistic and say that we are on the, um, uh, the, we're on the beginning edge uh, of this work and, um, and, and there, we have momentum behind us. We have the support of our institution to have these conversations and, and others do as well. Um, and, and so that's, um, uh, that's empowering and that's um, a, a positive step forward. I love your optimism, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not being sarcastic, y'all. But, um, you know, I'm optimistic, too. And I, and I, I, I echo what you said. It, it's been a long time, almost over a decade, and um, almost a decade. And we're still trying to collect data. So we don't even have our full picture yet. So yeah. uh, definitely that's an action required uh, for all. <laughs> is that we need to collect that data and we need to get an understanding as to what's going on. I was just to say that call for data has been coming now from the, the international levels, particularly aimed at Canada um, uh, through the UN and, uh, and other global institutions to, to raise the issue of um, the lack of data. And so um, I, I think organizations across the country are starting to hear that, certainly at the public health uh, level. Um, and, and we know uh, within Ontario, we know that there are several um, uh, public health units that are starting to track um, race-based data, um, which is an important step forward. So I, I think there is, there is some momentum in understanding the importance of this work. And, uh, and there are large machines behind this now that are starting to to do that very work. Now, in regards to social determinants of health, um, and just to remind everyone, that's, it's talking about age, race, sex, and gender, urban, rural environment, education, 
uh, workplace housing income. Like these are the factors that are at play. So when we talk about the social determinants of health or even more specifically with the ACEP document, it's social determinants of injury. It's pretty much saying those that are impacted and um, are of a, a lower social economic status or not in secured housing or have like food insecurities, like these individuals, these groups of people are at higher risk of uh, being injured uh, or experiencing traumatic injury. And for us to aim to reduce injuries, we should be, logically, you would think you would be directing the information, the resources to those that need it most. Now, there's this line that you always say about us just giving everyone vitamin D <laughs> that need it or not, they're just getting it. And I'm going to switch it up and saying, why are we giving everyone vitamin IP, injury prevention, when some are more vulnerable than others and some need it more than others. We understand that the greatest result amongst changing social norms and education um, is more of a lesser impact, but addressing the social determinants of injury and maneuvering in that focus and in that direction is probably the best way to reduce uh, the numbers of injuries that we see on an uh, annual basis. So why are we, if we know this, why are we still practicing injury prevention in this way? It's a great question. I, I don't know if I know the answer to it. I have some thoughts around it. Um, I think in, in general, the way that injury prevention has been structured, um, either within organizations or, or organizations working with other organizations, I think oftentimes it, it, they've been stratified by injury issue. Um, so we'll talk about seatbelt safety separate from we'll, talking about uh, car seat safety, separate from impaired driving safety. Uh, even though those are all related to driving, oftentimes there will be entire organizations that are set up just to talk about one of those things. And so they're going to share their message with everyone. Um, I think so. So the the siloed approach, the micro um, the, the micro issue approach to injury prevention, I think is problematic. And um, and, and we could do better to um, cross pollinate across the different issues because of the way they're they're intertwined. I, I think in terms of you know the the field of social marketing and um, or the practice of social marketing that we do within the public health space, um, it requires a process to understand the motivations of the um, the target population and the messaging should be aimed at uh, appealing to. Um, the, that target population and the things that motivate them. So there's going to be differences in the motivations for certain practices and behaviors. Understanding those underlying uh, beliefs and fears and um, the self-efficacy, like drawing on all of the you know behavior theories, um, that's you know that's a lot of work to do. And if an organization isn't funded to do that kind of work, they have a very limited marketing budget. Um, then they're going to put in a, a, a message that tries to cast the, the widest net. And so it may not be specific enough. Uh, and I think as a result, it also waters down the messaging and is not as effective. So that's, um, I think that's a condition of the way that the organizations are designed to work um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and deserves a rethink. Um, so I don't know that the social determinants of injury have driven the way that injury prevention works in the past. Um, I think there's more conversation about that and making sure that uh, approaches to injury prevention 
do have some kind of equity lens, uh, but to the extent that that's uh, common practice, uh, I, I think we'd probably be hard pressed to find that anywhere in the healthcare system and certainly within injury prevention. I think you're right. And thank you for um, your perspective on that. I know it's a, a hard question and I'm not saying you have all the answers, but definitely sounds about right um, in your suggested approach and what you've uh, seen. This micro level is problemat problematic and our casting go the wider net may seem logical uh, or maybe more efficient, but is it more effective? And uh, I'm not too sure if it is. So, uh, and just to be clear, I have no answers. <laughs> <laughs> I have thoughts and opinions. I don't, I don't, I certainly don't have answers. Um, and, and what I like is that we're generally coming up with more questions to continue probing um, this field that we're working in and the people that we work with uh, to try to challenge people um, to, to think a little bit differently and to, to try to do a better job than, than what we're doing right now. 100%. I'm up to the section about wicked problems and you yeah. brought this to me in one of our conversations not too long ago and I was just like Randy what's that <laughs> what's this wicked problem you speak of yeah. so I need you to give us a 101 a real brief 101 on what is what is or what could be deemed a wicked problem Sure. So, um, and, and uh, I have to say, um, a friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Susan Forbes, she's the one that introduced me to this concept of wicked problem. Um, and uh, it, when, you, when you read about it, you're like, Whew, yeah, that, that pretty much explains uh, what everything we do in injury prevention. So, um, so it's a social or cultural problem that is difficult or impossible to solve um, for as many as, as the following four reasons. One is incomplete or contradictory knowledge. Um, two is the number of people or opinions involved, three is the large economic burden, and the fourth is interconnected nature of these problems with other problems. So just about everything we do, you know, a lot of the reasons why we don't do injury prevention well is because it is um, either um, individually as an injury issue or as, uh, as a whole in terms of the field that we're working in, it is a wicked problem. There is, there is almost nothing that we're going to address in injury prevention that doesn't touch on these other things, particularly the social determinants of health. We have a, an incomplete uh, uh, set of data. We're, we're working almost blindfolded. We don't have the appropriate data to help us understand the issues. Um, there are lots of people who have opinions um, on, on how we can change things or fix things. And you know we see that played out on social media all the time. Everyone's got an opinion. And the economic burden of both injury as a whole, um, as you've already mentioned, as well as the, uh, the cost of fixing some of these issues is, is absolutely enormous. Um, and then, you know, how all of these issues relate to each other when you look at something like uh, uh, poverty and, and how that affects or, or um, low education, uh, things like that, how that affects uh, so many other parts of somebody's uh, life that um, one problem begets another problem begets another problem. So um, the the thing about injury is sometimes the the solution needs to happen 20 years before the injury incident. Um, sometimes it needs to happen five minutes before. Sometimes it's both. <laughs> so I'm thinking of something like fall prevention. If, if we start to focus on fall prevention when an 85-year-old uh, is is already deemed to be frail and has already fallen, and that's the first time we're talking about fall prevention with that individual, then we have a problem. 
we need to be looking at that individual much earlier in their in their life trajectory. So what what did that 85 year old look like when they were 65? And was there an opportunity to intervene and and work on some of their uh, physical competence and confidence at that point um, to reduce the likelihood of them falling at 85? That's, you know, addressing that kind of issue over that many years, over over that that kind of um, span of time, um, you know, creates its own problems. So that in a nutshell is <laughs> it's what a wicked problem is. And it's pretty much what we're sitting in day in and day out. Uh, how do we reduce the, um, the impact of these wicked problems on people? And I think, you know, as we start to draw on the social determinants of health um, more frequently and the lens of, of equity, um, we will start to see that the way to reduce a lot of our health issues is going to be by raising people up through education, socioeconomic status, um, and, and things of that nature, you know, removing uh, barriers within systems for access, uh, uh, dismantling systemic racism, that, that's injury prevention. It sounds all so exciting, so good, and so necessary. As you're speaking, you know, the ideas of like primordial prevention, upstream approach came to mind. And I was like, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about that um, just for our listeners to get a better understanding of what we believe the best approach for injury prevention should be. It's not downstream, which is what we commonly engage with, but to possibly look at upstream's approach to tackle the issues before it actually happened. So do you mind giving us a little bit of uh, your opinion around that? I, yes, absolutely. So Dan Heath uh, recently published a book. Um, uh, up, it's called Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. And he does a fantastic job of, uh, of, of uh, creating a shared understanding of what this approach really means, not just in, um, in an injury sense, um, but across uh, lots of other problems that we have in society. So the, the, um, you know, the main idea behind the upstream approach is that we're going to uh, understand, so again, using that four-step injury prevention process, we understand uh, where the injury is happening, to whom it's happening, why it's happening, how it's happening, all those fun things, and we can intervene before it happens. Um, our healthcare system is predicated on a downstream approach where we fix things after the fact. Um, but you know, part of the original concept of our healthcare system was to have a prevention focus and it was never fully implemented. So we have kind of a, um, uh, an incomplete healthcare system in Canada. Um, the focus on prevention was, was supposed to be um, a, a pivotal piece. Um, but but the upstream approach means that we we address the issue before it happened, and it's really well um, uh, uh, captured in this uh, this poem that you knew I was going to sneak into this this uh, the, this episode uh, called "The Ambulance Down in the Valley" by Joseph Mallins, and it was written in 1895. And um, I'm going to recite this for us. I, I, Should I add some background music? Maybe a bongo like drum? <laughs> you know, I, I can dim the lights a little bit. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it, it is, you know, it's, uh, it's got a lot of verses. So, but I'll, I will paraphrase. And basically, right. Take it um, away. yeah, the idea here is that people were falling off this cliff and falling into the valley and um, they were being injured. And so there was a decision to be made. Do we put a fence up on this beautiful cliff that people, you know, they love to go to and, 
and, and you know, look out at the beautiful vista. Um, and, and only some people were falling off. Not everybody was falling off, only some. Or do they just put a, an ambulance down in the valley and, and scoop up the people who have fallen and, and go and fix them and then not worry about disturbing the beautiful vista? The, the, the poem is going back and forth. And one of the things that struck me most is, um, where's my favorite part? They're not, they weren't concerned about people uh, falling. They said, <laughs> for the cliff is all right, if you're careful, they said. And if folks even slip and are dropping, it isn't the slipping that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. They, they, that was the argument for going with the downstream approach, um, where the, the upstream approach was, um, you know, towards the end of the poem, they say, to rescue the fallen is good, but tis best to prevent other people from falling. Uh, better close up the source of temptation and crime than deliver from dungeon or galley. Better put a strong fence around the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. So there was this old sage that was saying, you know, there's a better way to do this. If you could just prevent people from falling in the first place, then uh, you don't have to worry so much about the ambulance. But, you know, that was 1895 that they were having this discussion. So, um, you know, it would be amazing to think that a hundred and, 15 years from now, we wouldn't be having the same sort of conversation. And I guess, I guess, it, you know, we'll see what happens uh, as we move forward uh, from today. And, and the, you know, the conversations that we're having today, I think, are, are quite different than what they might have been having in 1895. But some of the issues remain the same. I love that. That was a great little paraphrase that you gave us. You know, it, it, there's a lot of wisdom in, 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 in the words. So Joseph Mellons was on to something back in 1895. So, Brandy, I know we're closing down. Um, I really don't want to leave, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the stats. What are the numbers? What are we working with? What are we speaking about when we talk about being uh, such a, a large cost to our healthcare costs, injury, and just so many deaths and hospitalization? Can you give our listeners some of those numbers? Certainly. And I can only do that because of our amazing... Uh, uh, national partners, uh, Parachute, um, who is our, our national injury prevention uh, charitable organization. And um, every um, few years, they're putting out an economic burden report of injury. And this helps injury prevention practitioners across the country really make the case for the importance of this work. Um, and the numbers are increasing and they're staggering. So what the, the most recent report uh, tells us is that each year, 15,866 Canadians die from preventable injury. Over 230,000 Canadians are hospitalized, and there's nearly 3.5 million emergency room visits attributed to injury. More than 60,000 Canadians are either partially or permanently disabled. And the cost of these injuries in direct health care costs is $15.9 billion, but the total economic cost associated with injury each year, every single year, every 12 months, is $26.8 billion. That equates to uh, 427 people in our country suffering a preventable injury as a result of a fall, of a, fall a motor vehicle uh, crash, fire poisoning, drowning, or other injury activities every hour. Um, it's staggering when you think about it. The, the enormity of injury in this country is, it, it's an overwhelming, uh, incalculable amount, um, although they've calculated it quite nicely. It's just, uh, it, 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 it defies logic um, that the, you know, that generally speaking, you know, we, we, we think that uh, we're, 
you know, capable of, of managing the risks uh, in front of us. Um, a lot of people will say they don't need uh, safety um, uh, interventions. Uh, they don't want them. Um, people generally think that they're, a, a, you know, above, above the risks that we face every day. Um, but the numbers, you know, clearly dictate otherwise. So uh, these, and these are preventable. There's absolutely no reason for us to A, spend, uh, you know, uh, almost $27 billion each year. We can better use that money for lots of other things. Or that we have so many deaths and uh, permanently uh, injured um, uh, Canadians each year. It's the, you know, those are horrifying statistics. So we, we've got a lot of work to do. We definitely do. Brandy, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Uh, today, <laughs> we did take a, a little journey on Injury Prevention 101, and uh, we addressed like the need for data uh, to take an upstream approach and to look at the social determinants of health to address and support um, having a healthy society. So I guess my last question that I wanted you to leave our uh, listeners with is, is there a call to action? And if so, what is it? Is there a call to action? Hmm. Just one call to action. Well, you know, I just snuck that in for you. <laughs> you Slip that, <laughs> that one in. Thanks, yeah. Sherry. So one call to action. I think if you're working in the injury prevention field that uh, we can no longer go forward without the lens of, um, of equity on anything that we do. And so I think we need to call out that practice um, uh, and, and ensure that everything that we do is done with, uh, with equity in mind. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brandy. Awesome. "'Twas a dangerous cliff, as I freely confess, so the walk near his crest was so pleasant. But over its terrible edge there had slipped a duke and full many a peasant. So the people said something would have to be done, but their projects did not at all tally. Some said put a fence around the edge of the cliff, some an ambulance down in the valley. But the cry for the ambulance carried the day for it spread through the neighboring city. A fence may be useful or not, it is true, but each heart became full of pity for those who slipped over the dangerous cliff." And the dwellers in highway and alley gave pounds and gave pence not to put up a fence but an ambulance down in the valley. For the cliff is all right if you're careful, they said, and if folks even slip and are dropping, it isn't the slipping that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. So day after day as these mishaps occurred, quick forth with those rescuers sally to pick up the victims who fell off the cliff with their ambulance down in the valley. Then an old sage remarked, it's a marvel to me that people give far more attention to repairing results and to stopping the cause when they'd much better aim at prevention. Let us stop at its source, all this mischief, cried he, come neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we will fence, we might almost dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. <laughs>